Um, for our guest, Dr. Lynn Mallard, you should know that we have chosen to have a curriculum, basically, that runs through the year and, and bring it to Grand Rounds and, and for people who come to have some healthy food uh, uh, and understand how that's made. With no uh, further discussion of culinary medicine, let's move on to Medical Grand Rounds. And we're delighted to have Dr. Lynn Maurer with us today, and he will be introduced to us by Dr. John Lurie. John Lurie is a professor of medicine, of orthopedics, and, and of the Dartmouth Institute. He is the Associate Section Chief in Hospital Medicine for Academics and Scholarship and many other things. But John, come and tell us about our guest today. All right. I'm going to keep this very short so that we can hear what Peter has to tell us. And he's got one of those CVs where I could go on for a long time because reading his CV reminds me that I'm really just a simple country doctor. Um, <laughs> but uh, Peter got his... Uh, BA in the History and Philosophy of Science from the University of Chicago, and then a master's in um, health planning and finance from the London School of Economics before getting his MD at the University of Pennsylvania. Then went on to do residency and chief residency at UCSF, where he oversaw and helped train another famous hospitalist named Peter. Um, and then he's went on to uh, a career in academic medicine. He's at Bay State, where he's a professor of medicine and of quantitative health sciences, and the director of the Institute for Healthcare Delivery and Population Science, and the assistant dean of population health at UMass. He's a founding member of the Society of Hospital Medicine. Um, he's got numerous honors and awards and grants and over 250 publications. It's really hard to imagine anyone who is more accomplished in the field of academic hospital medicine than Peter Lindenauer, and we're very fortunate to have him here today to talk to us about making information about the quality of healthcare more transparent. So please help me welcome Peter Lindenauer. Take it from here. Thank you, guys. Uh, John, thank you for that introduction. Uh, thanks to everyone who came out for dinner last night. And um, uh, it's really just an honor, pleasure to be here. And uh, this is a talk that I like to give, and I think it has broad appeal. There's a lot of material I'm going to try to cover. Uh, I grew up in New York, so I'm a fast talker. I think I can get through it all. Um, so let's start. Um, uh, nothing, well, I should say that I, I do uh, work um, indirectly for Medicare, and I'm going to be talking about public reporting of healthcare quality uh, and, and receive some salary support to, to help develop outcome measures for CMS. So I'm going to start uh, with a case. This is a, an 80 year old. Uh, retired elementary school principal with well-controlled hypertension and several years of progressive right hip pain from osteoarthritis. She happens to be my mom. Uh, she uh, has had some relief from non-steroidals and acetaminophen uh, and physical therapy, but uh, has very severe pain that's limited her mobility and uh, very much her ability to enjoy time with grandchildren, to come up to visit, and uh, she's seen a physiatrist who suggested that she would benefit from a hip replacement. 
She lives in Brooklyn Heights and um, really was kind of overwhelmed by the number of hospitals and surgeons in the New York metropolitan area and uh, called me up and said, this is something that you know something about. How would you go about helping me uh, pick a surgeon uh, or pick a hospital uh, where to have a hip replacement? So I'll ask you guys to just sort of think for a minute, you know, how you would go about advising a loved one uh, about where to have elective surgery. And um, imagine, too, that you aren't a doctor and, and don't have a friend from medical school or residency practicing in the same city uh, to ask for advice. So just hold that thought for a minute. And, um, and that's sort of, I think, where a lot of people find themselves today. So, uh, you know, what, what would you do in, in 2020? You'd consult the Oracle. So I tried, you know, the best hip replacement in New York City. Uh, I got a bunch of hits, uh, started to kind of go through them as a good son would. Uh, then I thought, well, geez, maybe, maybe I need to refine my search strategy. So I said, best hip replacement outcomes, New York City. I'm an outcomes researcher. So I that might help. And, um, you know, very quickly, what you'll, what you'll find is that there's a lot of information out there for, for consumers. So U.S. News and World Report, I think we're all familiar with that. Health grades, maybe uh, people here who work in quality or uh, know health grades. There's the LeapFrog Group. There's the 800-pound gorilla, Medicare.gov, Hospital Compare. Something called Vitals, where you can you know, rate doctors. Angie's List started with plumbers and electricians, but uh, they have information about surgeons too. Uh, Surgeonrating.org from Consumer Checkbook, a, a, a very sort of long-standing nonprofit organization. They were the ones who filed a Freedom of Information Act request to get Medicare data to, to start looking at surgeon outcomes, uh, and even Yelp. Uh, has information about this. So uh, with that sort of introduction, let me uh, go over the objectives for the talk this morning. I'm going to sort of have, I guess, four parts. Uh, I'm going to review the motivation for these public reporting programs, try to summarize quickly the evidence about their effects. Um, I'll highlight some of the challenges and unintended consequences that make these programs uh, controversial uh, and, and, and problematic, I think, in some ways, and then uh, sort of take a look forward to where I, I think the field is headed. So 2009 feels like a long time ago. <laughs> but uh, on his first day in office, President Obama said transparency and the rule of law will be the touchstones of this presidency. and. Um, this idea of transparency is actually uh, goes back, you know, sort of a long-standing value in, in our society. James Madison, 1822, has this famous quote, a popular government without popular information or the means of acquiring it is but a prologue to a farce or a tragedy or perhaps both. And, uh, you know, the last century has been marked by a number of milestones uh, on a path towards greater transparency. Uh, and it, it's been motivated by this idea that 
you know, the economists and political scientists have kind of realized that markets don't always function properly to produce all of the information that consumers need to make um, informed choices. And so when there is the p possibility of hidden, they talk about sort of hidden service flaws, <coughs> hidden risks, the way that you can um, empower consumers is by requiring a disclosure. And so it started with things like the Pure Food and Drug Act, which is the first time that manufacturers of drugs were required to say what was in the drugs, <laughs> you know, what, you know, Millie's snake oil uh, contained. Security and Exchange Act was after, obviously, the stock market crash, and this is what required uh, publicly traded companies to actually have to file reports about their revenues and their profits and losses and debts. Uh, and it goes on, nutritional labeling laws. That was only in the 1990s that we had to say, you know, how much fat and sodium were in, in the food we were eating. And then the 2000s brought mortality and readmission rates. So um, that's a bit of the sort of the history. What's the sort of the conceptual model for why this might work in healthcare? And this is something that Don Berwick, uh, once upon a time, uh, the head of CMS, and before that, the head of the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, sort of laid out this conceptual model where uh, we talked about two sort of pathways uh, that release of public data would create knowledge. And the knowledge of, of performance could, could have two effects. It could lead to selection, meaning patients would choose better providers, better hospitals. And that could simply improve quality and improve outcomes by shunting more patients to better providers, better hospitals. The other uh, pathway would be the change pathway. So because of our professionalism, if we saw that the quality of care at Bay State wasn't as good as it was up at Dartmouth, we would feel compelled to, uh, to improve our quality. And if we weren't motivated by the professionalism, we might be motivated by the fear of patient selection, that patients would come up to Dartmouth for their hip replacement. So that's the theory. Uh, I think there are a number of catalysts for the growth of this. Uh, probably most of them are pretty obvious. The first is this idea that quality and isn't as good as it should be, and our costs are higher than the rest of the world. And you've seen these kind of figures before. I don't need to go over them. The second, I think, is more um, sort of unique to this topic, and, and I call it sort of secular changes in federal and state policymaking. And it's really this idea that you could harness decisions of private individuals to achieve public purpose. And, and the idea is that, you know, doing it this way uh, can gain greater acceptance when people are typically skeptical about government's ability to regulate things. We can't regulate that quality is better, but we could regulate that hospitals, or in this case, restaurants, disclose their sanitary rating, and then let the public decide. So do you feel comfortable going to a restaurant that has a B rating from the Board of Health? Um, do you feel comfortable going to a hospital that has a one-star rating on you know, hospital compare? The third catalyst 
is consumerism in general. We, more than most countries in the world, the Amer you know, Americans, more than most people in the world, we are very, you know, we like a good deal. We, uh, we want to go to the best high school or get the best car, and um, we seek this information out. So, uh, you know, having that same sense of consumerism uh, come to healthcare doesn't feel like a big leap to me. And then the fourth catalyst is the obviously the internet and, and social media. Um, you know, how many people plan a trip anymore without going online and looking at reviews on TripAdvisor or bookings or, you know, name your site? Um, it used to be that if you were interested in getting information about the quality of a hospital, uh, you could call the government accounting office or the government printing office and have them mail you a book. I did that once upon a time. Um, it's not a particularly effective way of disseminating information, and obviously the world has changed over the last 20 years. Uh, and so now you have, you know, at the click of a mouse, you can call up Medicare.gov's <coughs> hospital compare and take a look at the ratings for NYU Langone, New York Presbyterian, and the Hospital for Special Surgery, um, and start to make inferences about, you know, the, the quality uh, of the hip and knee replacements at, at those sites. So, sounds good in theory, maybe. Maybe you bought, bought the conceptual model. Uh, what do we know about whether this thing works or not? And so I'm going to try to break it down according to that, to that model. So remember, there was the change pathway, um, in other words, stimulating quality improvement pathway, and then there was the selection pathway. So we'll look at the evidence for both of those. So does it stimulate QI? <coughs> this is a paper uh, from Judith Hibbard from 2003, uh, but it represented a large trial where they assigned hospitals in Wisconsin to uh, having their information about their quality reported publicly in the newspapers and on the radio and in the television uh, for the hospitals to get private reports uh, about how they were doing and for no reporting. And what you can see here is that in black, hospitals that were assigned to, to the public reporting uh, intervention reported more quality improvement activities on average in both obstetric care, uh, maybe a little less so in cardiac care, than hospitals assigned to private or, or no reporting, suggesting that this does, you know, it does sort of stimulate activity. Uh, we published a paper a few years ago in which we uh, surveyed qual chief quality officers at uh, uh, sent this survey to 600 U.S. hospitals and had a pretty decent response rate. And, and sort of along the lines of, is this motivating uh, people? What you can see here is 90%, uh, 87% incorporated the CMS quality measures into the hospital annual goals. They 90% are reviewing it regularly with their boards. 94% reviewed with clinical and administrative leaders. Uh, and used in the variable compensation of senior leaders, 51%, uh, and even 30% amongst physicians. I suspect this number is even higher today than it was in, in 2014. I'm looking at my friend Peter Solberg. I'll have to check with him after, uh, after the talk. 
So, uh, so I think it, you know, it is being used. It probably does stimulate activity. Does it have any effect on outcomes uh, or quality? There have not been a lot of randomized trials of these kinds of interventions. Uh, this was one. Um, it's, it's about a decade old now. It was a randomized trial in uh, Ontario. Uh, they randomized, I think it was about 80 hospitals to early public reporting or delayed public reporting. They didn't feel like you know they could have a, a, in, a, just a true control, but uh, so it was a wait list sort of randomization. And uh, their primary outcome was a composite quality measure based on care processes uh, in AMI and in heart failure. And their secondary outcomes were QI activity and mortality rates. And what's interesting about this study is that for their primary outcome, uh, did it improve the quality measures, which were sort of process-based beta blockers and that kind of thing? Uh, they really did not see any significant difference between the hospitals who were assigned to public reporting and those who, who weren't. So this isn't, did it stimulate activity? This is, did it change care processes? They didn't find any. They did see a significant reduction in uh, AMI mortality and a non-significant but trending in the right direction reduction in mortality in the heart failure patients, which you know, raises some interesting questions about whether, you know, could the fact that the hospitals were focusing on improving quality have led to improvements in outcomes through pathways other than the, the standard quality measures that we, we focus on, right? We don't really think that the standard quality, the process measures, explains all of the variance in uh, hospital outcomes. So maybe there were some other things going on, but they didn't have the ability to sort of understand the mechanisms through which this uh, seemed to have had an effect. So this was uh, a study with mixed results. Here's what we know about the effect of public reporting of mortality rates. This is for MI, but the story is the same for pneumonia and heart failure. It's a paper from Andy Ryan, who's at the University of Michigan. And what you see here is a time series analysis looking at risk-adjusted 30-day MI mortality rates between 2000 and 2008. Uh, before and after the introduction of public reporting. If there had been a significant effect of public reporting, you would expect a change in the intercept or the change in the slope of, of this figure. Uh, there may be a little something going on, but nothing statistically significant. Uh, so this was, this was null. Uh, same story for readmission. This is a paper from Jack, uh, 2016. You can see uh, Hospital Compare launched in 2005, public reporting of readmissions starting in 2009. It's not until 2012 that the penalties kick in, so you do have a period where you're just sort of looking at the effect of, of reporting, and it's the same kind of analysis. So you're looking for a change in the intercept, change in the slope. You don't see it, so you'd have to conclude from this that public reporting of readmission rates did not change uh, hospital readmission uh, uh, rates. So that was the change pathway. Uh, what about this selection pathway? Does it influence consumer choices? This is some interesting data. Um, so it starts with some older data. Unfortunately, the Kaiser Family Foundation has not updated this since 2008, but I wanted to share with you this idea of like, do, what, do, what do we know about the degree to which patients think that there are big differences 
between the quality of the doctors, the quality of the hospitals, because, you know, if you don't think that there's big differences in, in quality, uh, you're probably not going to be seeking out information about quality uh, to, to guide your choice if you think all doctors, you know, are, are about the same. But uh, it, that's, you know, it's sort of a glass half full, glass half empty, I think, answer here. But if you're thinking about it from the standpoint of specialists, uh, it's between a quarter and uh, a third or a bit more. The patients think that there are big differences. And even a little bit more, closer to 50% for, for a hospital. So, you, so there seems to be some, um, some basis for which you know, patients might be seeking information about quality if, if they have this uh, sense that there, that there are differences. So uh, these are data from 2018. And this is, I think, very interesting. So when searching for a new doctor or medical professional, consumers are most concerned with, is the doctor in my network? Do they have a convenient location? Uh, how good is their reputation? Now, I don't exactly know how people figure that out, but they care about that. And then certainly personality and bedside manner, uh, only 10% say a high quality rating from a magazine or a ranking website is, uh, is, is uh, most important. And interestingly, and we're going to touch on this, 20% now say high user reviews from other patients. Okay. The, uh, this issue, though, of making information about quality uh, more available to patients is important. This is Kaiser Family Foundation, top health priorities for the President and Congress from about three years ago. Uh, the most important top priority was making sure that high-cost drugs for chronic conditions are affordable to people who need them. Uh, but not too far down the list is making information comparing the quality of care provided by doctors and hospitals more available to patients. So patients seem to want this information. And then here's some uh, also recent data from 2018, a survey from Deloitte uh, looking at uh, how people are, are using the information. And they compared 2015 to 2018. So there's two comparisons going on here. We'll just look at, look at this one. Looked up a report card for a physician in the past year. In 2015, 18%. And in uh, 2018, up to 23%, similar with cost. And then, then they compared sort of today versus likely to use in the future. So people are envisioning uh, sort of a growing role for looking up report card information about their physicians going forward. And uh, some of you may read the upshot in the New York Times. Austin Frack is a health economist in Boston. And he wrote this piece uh, called The Life-Changing Magic choosing the right hospital. He was really just reporting about a, a study uh, published uh, that year. This was uh, 2016 or 2017, um, in which some health economists looked at changes in MI mortality rates over the past decade. And based on their analysis, they drew the conclusion that fully half of the, um, fully half of the gains in MI survival uh, over the past decade had been due to 
more patients being cared for at hospitals with lower mortality rates. Half of it was due to improvements in technology, improvements in, um, in care, but, but half of it had to do with this uh, changes in, in where patients are actually seeking care. And, you know, if you think this is, sounds odd, I mean, this is what the critical care doctors have been talking about for a long time, regionalization of care for, for sepsis, the stroke doctors trying to regionalize care for stroke. So that's the evidence bit of the talk. I'm going to now shift gears and think about what some of the challenges are and unintended consequences. So the first challenge that I list is, is the challenge of risk adjustment. And um, this is a problem that's been around for a long time. Uh, many of you know the name Florence Nightingale. We think of her as a nurse from the Crimean War, and there's beautiful portraits of her tending to injured soldiers. Uh, but she was, uh, um, you know, an epidemiologist sort of first and, and foremost. And she published a book, uh, Notes on Hospitals, in 1863, in which she reported on mortality rates at uh, 160, 106 hospitals of England uh, and uh, reported that at the 24 large London hospitals, mortality rates approached 91%. How would you like to be the chief quality officer at those hospitals? <laughs> Whereas at the 25 county and important provincial hospitals, that'd be like my hospital, the mortality rate was 39%. And uh, uh, as you might expect, there was great furor over this and debate in the, in the newspapers. There was no social media or tweeting about this, but in the letters to the editor section, the London hospital said that this didn't account for how sick their patients were and the uh, the, you know, Nightingale and her colleagues said, well, if you were only collecting your data better and reporting it better, we'd be able to do better risk adjustment. Um, so this has been around for a long time. And, and of course, we have these very same debates today. Um, so, so risk adjustment is, is, is something that uh, we have to deal with. Remember, I told you about that survey we did of chief quality officers. Uh, you would think they, of all people, might sort of buy into the quality measures that we have uh, more than others. Or you might imagine that they're the most informed, so they take it all with a grain of salt. And that's sort of what we found. That only half of the uh, chief quality officers in our survey agreed or strongly agreed that risk adjustment appropriately accounts for differences in, in patient case mix, allowing for the comparison of mortality rates between hospitals similar concerns about readmission uh, and some of our other quality measures. Okay, another issue is the issue of construct validity, or in other words, are we measuring what we think we are measuring? So, um, so one of the studies we did was to look at the records of all deaths of patients with a principal diagnosis of pneumonia at base. Pneumonia mortality is one of the big CMS quality measures. It's been so for a long time. And we used a structured approach to chart review to assess whether pneumonia was a major or a minor determinant of death. What we found was that in only one of five deaths was the, would a clinician really think that <coughs> pneumonia was what, was what was sort of driving the death. In other cases, it was someone with a terminal, in most of the cases, it was people with terminal illnesses who this was their, you know, final sort of hospitalization. Uh, it got COVID as pneumonia. 
Um, and so it sort of raises the question of how often does a death from pneumonia signal poor quality of care? And you know, when, when these first measures were conceived, the idea of like a heart attack mortality, well, you know, you come in for the heart attack and, and we try to save you, keep you alive at 30 days. Conceptually, I think that's a stronger case for that, that, that being a signal of quality. It gets dicier when you look at conditions like pneumonia. And then certainly there's been a lot of debate over the last several years about is readmission a, uh, a good thing or is it a bad, you know, it's a bad thing. No, well, some people say it's a good thing. Um, I can share my opinion about that after the talk. Um, but uh, that, that's sort of another one where the construct validity of the, of the measure itself is being challenged. Another problem is the problem of power, or not enough of it. So if you are a patient in Vermont, and you uh, stay with pneumonia for a minute, uh, you were thinking, you know, which hospital should my mom go to if she develops pneumonia? I better go check that website. Uh, well, this is what you're going to find. Every single hospital is an average hospital. And pneumonia is one of our most common inpatient conditions. Right? There's not many more, maybe heart failure. So if we can't figure out, like, are there better hospitals to get your pneumonia care for, um, <clears throat> you know, it, 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 it shows you how challenging it might be for any condition that's less common than that. So then there's the problem of gaming. Um, this was, uh, I think, like a research letter that Steve Farmer <clears throat> published in JAMA some years ago in which they showed what happened to <coughs> the rates of central line associated infections before and after the introduction of the uh, um, payment penalties for hospital-acquired conditions. And some, lo and behold, in the course of one year, we had this dramatic improvement that somehow the infection preventionists had not been able to sort of figure out how to tackle this problem before, but starting, you know, the year of the penalties, uh, there was a more than 50% reduction in, in the hack rates. Uh, so raised concerns about coding differences, more about documentation and coding, and, and these didn't really correspond with things that were coming from CDC, NHSN type of surveillance approaches. Uh, then there's the problem of report cards contradicting one another. This was a study we did um, published in 2008 in which we uh, drew a 25-mile radius circle around Boston, I think from like Tufts Medical Center. And we looked at seven different rating uh, websites, Hospital Compare, Health Grades, LeapFrog, U.S. News and World Report, uh, or a five, seven hospitals that we found, and we looked at how they were rated for their cabbage uh, outcomes, right? You're thinking about getting a cabbage, you live in Boston, you're willing to drive 25 miles. And so this is illustrative of what we found is that if you're Hospital E, U.S. News and World Report said you were the worst, but if you were, if you looked on Hospital Compare, you were the best hospital. So, you know, what, uh, what is a consumer to do? It's, uh, this is a problem. Uh, and what do you do if you're the poor chief quality officer who has to field the calls about, well, are you the best? Are you the worst? So in New York State, the hospital association 
every year has to publish a report card on report cards to help people try to make sense of this stuff. Um, you know, and this kind of gives you just a sense of the complexity of all of the different number of report cards and measures. Uh, and it, if you're interested, go and download this. It, it's pretty interesting reading. Making sense of hospital reporting chaos. Okay, so uh, the last uh, section of the talk is focused on sort of where we're headed, Transparency 2.0. I'm going to touch on three issues. The first is incorporating patient narratives. The second is the shift from uh, process to outcomes and really uh, patient reported outcomes. And then uh, mentioned costs. And, and uh, okay. So patient narratives. Uh, some years ago, my colleague Tara Lagu and I were sitting around um, thinking about why uh, patients don't seem to use these public reporting websites very much. And now I, I tried to show you some information that says more people are, are using it, but five, five, seven years ago when we wrote this editorial, uh, it, was, it looked bleaker. Like it didn't seem like anybody was using this information. Nobody knew what hospital compare was. Um, and one of the things that struck us was that the websites were very static and very like web 1.0. Um, they did not allow users to post content the way you would find on TripAdvisor uh, or Yelp, which were things that were emerging, had emerged by then. There was no social media kind of, at the time we called it like web 2.0. I think now we call it social media, user created content. So we wrote this editorial uh, in JAMA in which we said a logical next step on the path towards greater transparency and accountability might be for CMS to provide the opportunity for all patients to share their experiences via a patient feedback function that could be added to the hospital compare website. Additionally, CMS could develop a website that would allow patients to write reviews about physician practices. So this was like published on JAMA within 15 minutes, my inbox was flooded with like friends and colleagues saying, like, "Have you lost your effing mind? You know, what? What are you? What are you thinking?" And I was like, "Listen, we're we're not thinking about anything radical. This is something that the National Health Service in the UK has been doing for a number of years, and they're the leader of the NHS had gone on record saying, I would never think about planning a trip without TripAdvisor. Why should anyone plan on coming to one of our hospitals without being able to read reviews?'" So if you go on to uh, their website, St. Bart's is one of the teaching hospitals in London, you can read this. You know, I brought my 85-year-old mom to the heart clinic on Friday for consultation about the TAVI procedure. From the minute we arrived, we were both treated with respect, kindness, and dignity. The blood pressure was extremely high and gave cause for concern, so we were given priority. Everyone we spoke to, and I mean everyone, could not have been more helpful from the nurse we saw first, to the receptionist, at the ECG, and it just goes on. And so if you're like a patient thinking about going to this hospital, I would say this is going to be a lot more powerful to you than some, you know, indecipherable kind of quality measures, mortality at 30 days, infection rates, and so forth. Uh, and in fact, our, the people who are responsible for HCAPs here in, in, in the U.S., 
have already started to experiment with this kind of thing and have found that, uh, that American patients put a lot more emphasis on, on this kind of thing than they do on, on the, the ratings, which the other ratings, the, the objective quality measures. Uh, so this has come uh, to a hospital near you. This is uh, my, uh, one of the best squash players I play with, Hanno. Uh, is a primary care doc in Williamsburg, Mass. And you can see uh, I'm outing him as a 4.8 star doctor with 752 reviews, 752 ratings and 70 comments. So if you were thinking about going to see Hanno as your primary care doctor, you know, you could find out that he's a high quality, low key, Hilltown kind of guy, is much, much loved by all of his patients, efficient, friendly, and helpful. Um, and, and you could scroll through 70 reviews and, and really try to get a, a sense of who Hanno is and how, how that practice works. Uh, how many of you know that this is here? So if you are looking for a provider in the Dartmouth-Hitchcock system, you can uh, you can do this too. And, and on the website, it, your website, it says choosing the right doctor for you and your loved ones can be difficult. Dartmouth-Hitchcock offers as much information about each provider as possible. We share reviews and ratings from our actual patients to help you make the best decision. I looked for a review of you. I didn't find one. <laughs> okay, so uh, narratives, I think, are, are increasingly becoming important. Uh, Patient-reported outcomes. So, so what, why are patient-reported outcomes a, a sort of worth thinking about for a minute? I, you know... Think about it from the patient perspective. Most healthcare aims to reduce symptoms and improve quality of life. Not about preventing 30-day mortality and readmission. When you go in for your hip replacement, my mom's not thinking, am I gonna be alive at 30 days or have an infection at 30 days? It's like, am I gonna be able to get down on the ground with my grandkids or walk to the beach? So why don't we measure the things that patients care about? Patients welcome being involved in their care, assessing their outcomes, uh, and this may have health benefits in itself. It avoids an observer bias. I mean, we don't want to ask the orthopedic surgeon, is, is Nancy doing better? Let's just ask Nancy, is, is she doing better? And, uh, and patients typically have higher response rates on the surveys than, than the doctors do. So this is what it looks like on the, NA, on the NHS. So somehow, like, the NHS managed to do all this at, like, half the cost of the U.S. healthcare system, right? But I know there, there are issues there. But um, so if you are looking for a hip replacement in, in London, you can look at the hospitals and see uh, risk-adjusted hip revision rates, uh, health improvements reported by patients. Uh, oh, and so here are some generic quality of life measures. And here are disease-specific uh, quality of life measures for hip replacement. You can see these two hospitals, I don't know why, Guy's and the Royal London, have uh, below average uh, improvements in quality of life, but it might be the kind of thing you, you would care about. We don't know yet, this is new in the UK, it's in the last couple of years, we don't know yet, has it had an effect on where people go? Has it changed, you know, have the, have the, Providers use this information to improve their practice. At Partners Healthcare in Boston, they really believe that measuring patient-reported outcomes is the secret sauce to how you get better and become a learning health system. So, 
Uh, and then the last thing I will touch on is costs. So I did share the um, information from those surveys saying that patients care about costs uh, and they would like the costs to be more available. This is uh, uh, what they say about how easy or difficult it is. So two-thirds say it's difficult to find out what medical care will cost. Um, as of last year, January 2019, hospitals must now post prices. So this is a good thing. The Trump administration required hospitals to post list prices for all their services starting this year. Problem is, it may take a brain surgeon to decipher them. Uh, so this is what it actually looks like. Uh, I, I looked at the Dartmouth website last night. It looks pretty good, actually. This is Vanderbilt. Um, go onto their website. Uh, there's that information about billing and charges. And then you get this. You get an Excel spreadsheet that, even as a health services researcher who works with claims data for a living, it's very hard for me to make any sense of what this means and how I would use it to decide, like, what anything is going to cost me. And of course, these are, I don't know, these are the charges. It has nothing to do with what my insurance is going to pay or what my actual copay deductible is going to be. So uh, how helpful this will be is kind of, uh, uh, I think, uh, an open question. It needs to become a little bit more patient-friendly. Uh, uh, the latest thing, this is from just a couple of weeks ago, hospitals sue Trump to keep negotiated prices secret. The administration wants hospitals, wants to require hospitals to reveal the rates they privately negotiate uh, with insurers. That would make it easier for you maybe to see what it would be for with your insurance. Um, uh, and hospitals are pushing back on that. So to summarize, and I'm glad I left time for uh, some <coughs> discussion, I think sharing information with the public about quality of care is here to stay, despite what I hope uh, you would agree is sort of limited evidence that it's led to changes in uh, patient outcomes um, or quality. However, the end uh, is still relatively small. And I think fundamentally, I think the alternatives are worse. I mean, I think the idea that we would not have information and not attempt to make information about quality available to consumers, to patients, uh, is, is way worse than struggling to get uh, to something that we feel good about. There are these methodologic issues and concerns about unintended consequences that warrant kind of continued attention, uh, not just by the chief quality officers of the world, but I think by certainly uh, division chiefs and, 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 and faculty need to understand uh, what these, what's being measured, how it's being measured. Um, and I've given you a taste about incorporating patient narratives, patient-reported outcomes, and costs. And, and these all, to me, seem like steps in the right direction. And with that, I'm happy to stop and entertain any questions. area, the vast majority is Hitchcock. 
you can either go to Hitchcock or you can go to one of the other hospitals around, which is Hitchcock Associated. How, in that setting, is there any way in which a report card has any bearing whatsoever? Because you don't have any choice. Right. And, right. and the only way choices will come is if there's someone within each of the different facilities uh, communities within the, within the hospital who will say, hey, you know what, we really need to look at this better, or you know yeah. what, no one took any in interest in taking a careful history, and so on and so forth. So that's my question. Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. I, I will agree and disagree, because on the one hand, I get your point that uh, there are many parts of the country that don't look like Brooklyn, you know, and, and people's choices aren't that great. Um, However, like where I live in Northampton, Mass., we have a small local community hospital, Cooley Dickinson. Uh, they don't provide, uh, you know, um, tertiary cancer care or, or, you know, tertiary services. There is a bus, uh, there is a shuttle bus that takes patients to Mass General now. So if you are a patient in my town and you could go to Bay State 20 minutes down 91, uh, you, there is a serious competition right now where Mass General is sent, has a shuttle bus twice a day, get your cancer care in Boston, get your hip replacement in Boston. So, so there is maybe more choice than it always seems like. Uh, but I agree with you in principle that, that there are a lot of places where there isn't much choice. And, the, and, and that's only, those buses are only running to bring the, the well, comp, you know, the well, uh, reimburse patients to, to the MGH. Um, but I, there is that other pathway. I mean, if you're the hospital, it's a small hospital, maybe they don't have a chief quality officer, but they have a chief medical officer or a CEO, uh, and you are you see that your infection rates post-op are, are high or your readmission rate is high, uh, I do th believe that there is a professionalism that you know, compels people to, to try to get to the bottom of it. Now, some things are more sort of uh, addressable than others, and we've struggled to figure out how to make readmission rates get better. But there are other things like, I mean, every time there's a spike in infections in our hospital, uh, our infection preventionists seem to be able to, to get to the bottom of it and fix it. So, other questions? Yeah, it's a really interesting presentation. When I read a lot of this stuff, what I find it problematic is the notion that the patients can make these decisions without any other expert opinion, namely their primary care doctor. It seems to me primary care doctors have usually matched the patient's characteristics with the best place for those characteristics. I don't think a patient is capable of knowing which hospital is best if you have mild congestive heart failure yeah. or which hospital is best if you have an immunologic problem. So I, I think this is a good start, but it seems to me this is a very preliminary. What I, what I hear is encouragement of the patients to act as if they're independent contractors, which I don't think is right. in their interest. Right. Yeah, no, I, I, I take your point. I mean, listen, people have to choose a primary care physician, right? You, no, there's no other doctor who's going to choose that for you. So, uh, you know, how did we used to do it? We used to just, like, ask the other person in my mom's building would say, I had my hip done by, or, you know, my PCP is so, so-and-so, and they're good. Or they're, you know, and I'm thinking, there must be a better way to, so I sort of feel like at least providing some experience data for patients is good. How you go from, like, uh, having a PCP to wh which hospital or which doctor you get a procedure from is, is 
what I presented was pretty reductionistic, this idea that the patients are just going on a website and choosing. There is some element of that. And that, actually, that's what sort of happened with my mom's surgery. But, um, but a lot of the times, it's guided by the referral networks of your PCP. So if your PCP is associated with New York Presbyterian, they are going to send you to the orthopedic surgeon at New York Presbyterian. And, and how they pick which one, I'm not exactly sure how they pick which one. How, how, you know, we did a study some years ago where we surveyed PCPs and asked them, like, how do they decide which hospital to send their patients to when they had pneumonia? You know, I should have, we probably should have asked them about hip replacement or something. But, um, you know, they, they don't have, a, at the time, they didn't use objective, if you would call it objective, sort of, quality data to guide it. It was mostly like, well, I had privileges there and, you know, my, they had hospitalists. That was a big one. <laughs> they had hospitalists. Can you speak to the um, need for or consequences of having your, as having comparative data? Because someone's always going to be above quartile. And even as you drive quality up and people bunch together, someone's always going to be Penalized? Yeah. Is there a better way to measure this that doesn't have that consequence? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, it, 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 it's happening at the hospital. It's been at the hospital level for a while where there are hospitals that are two-star hospitals, and then they have to sort of do some soul-searching and a lot of explaining. Our hospital didn't get as high ratings as it wanted this past year, and our CEO wrote a letter about it. Uh, and then there's at the provider level where it feels more personal. If you're a PCP and the comments are not so nice. Um, now often, first of all, it turns out that most people really like their doctors. So if you, it's very, it's hard to find doctors where the, the star ratings are, are low and where the comments are bad. But there are sometimes some bad comments sprinkled in. Oftentimes they're about the practice and not about the doctor. You know, but it gets actually uh, attributed to the doctor. Uh, even if it's practice level kinds of stuff. I guess the thing I would say is, um, well, sometimes the truth hurts, and but also that the um, I see it as an opportunity to learn and to get better. So uh, there's a quote that I have, it's, uh, it's on my laptop, from a hotel that we stayed at in Thailand last year, and it said something like, it was a little poster, uh, you know, on the by the checkout, and said, please leave a review about our hotel and tell us, you know, so that we can learn how to do better, how we can learn how to be a better hotel. And I think good hospitals and good practices are studying these reviews, whether they're publicly posted or just privately, you know, submitted, to try to figure out what do we need to do to, to make the experience better for patients. If the goal is to get everyone higher, quality, yeah, and everybody gets high quality, somebody's still going to be in the bottom quartile. Yeah, uh, but if everybody's like 4.8, 4.9, 5.0, I'm not sure, you know, then I think which is closer and which is, you know, in, has a lower copay probably ends up being a factor. We, we don't all live in uh, Lake Wobegon, but uh, um, the question about uh, the potential bias for narratives um, with individual uh, reporting 
is significantly there. I think many of us, perhaps most of us, have had the experience that we've gone to a restaurant or stayed at some lodging with the subtle bias of saying, if you liked us, write us a review. <laughs> um, and, and I think hospitals will not be immune to that either, hospitals and providers. Yeah, no, I mean, I could give a whole talk uh, about narratives, and uh, so I just touched on it, but you're getting at one of the key concerns that has to do with the fact that these are not random samples, you know, of, or they're not, they're randomly, the surveys are sent out randomly, but the responses are not random responses. So so who is responding? Um, and and the problem of small numbers. So unless you have a lot of reviews, it's like on Amazon, you know, uh, if there's a lot of reviews and then you read one cranky one, you maybe feel less worried that uh, the, there's a problem with the quality of the product. Um, and I think the same is true, but if you only have five reviews or 10 reviews and one is bad, that's a problem. And so you need a lot of reviews for this to work, probably, or a lot of narratives uh, um, to overcome the, the, sque the squeaky wheel problem. Um, and I think there is a gaming situation. I have, I have several guys that I do you know, stuff outside of work with uh, are, are in private practice, and they've told me I, when, when there's a patient who's really happy with the care, those are the ones that we say, could you please like, make sure to leave a review? Peter, when you when you were I'm curious just reviewing the data for sort of the objective quality measures, is, has anyone worked on the question about whether by reporting on certain things we're actually harming care because we're not reporting other things? Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, my colleague Dr. Blake up there has us thinking a lot about caudies and 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 hacks. But is there any literature trying to look at the question of you know you spend so much time preventing a few hacks that you mm -hmm. don't do yeah. Something else. Yeah. I, uh, I took out a slide, um, you know, to make sure I save room for the questions. And, but this, this is what you're getting at, this idea of we're teaching to the test. And maybe that they're, you know, uh, it, this is one of the unintended consequences. Maybe there's more important things to worry about at the hospital than, 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 than that and whatever it is. And, but we can't get to it because we have to focus on the publicly reported measures. Um, so, yeah, I, I, you know, when we surveyed the quality officers, we asked them about this too. And they actually agreed that this, you know, that I don't know, half of them were concerned about teaching to the test and, and it was diverting attention from other more important problems. So I think that is, uh, you know, a, a concern. I some, yeah. You know, I feel mixed about it. In our state, there's the standardized testing, and it it, it it tends to be a very polarizing thing. And, you know, I grew up in New York, and, and we had standardized testing. And I don't know, I, if we all agree, you know, kids are supposed to learn some math and learn and be able to be proficient in it. Maybe it's okay that hospitals have to be proficient in these things. But I, I you know, I, I understand this concern about teaching to the test, and it can obviously go overboard. I'm not sure if this is a question, an observation, or a request for reassurance. <laughs> it strikes me that there are some parallels to um, higher education. 
So as a parent who just uh, recently went through the process of helping children decide what the right college was for them, um, it seems like this has happened in higher education. There's a lot of reporting. Rate my professor is big. <laughs> yeah, well, and, and U.S. News and World Report. Yeah. Um, and, and it's a very consumer-oriented model, and colleges uh, really want students to see their college as the right place, but that often, it, I, that seems like it's driving um, better gyms, more sports teams, better food, better food. dining halls, beautiful dorms, but... Tuition going up. And, yes, exactly. Simultaneously, tuition is going up, but really, where are the education, quality of education-oriented outcomes that consumers yeah. can identify and that then drive higher education to do the right thing? Yeah. So the consumer model, um, which is very American in in healthcare seems really problematic. Yeah, yeah. No, I think it's that's a very um, good observation and, and comment. I, I think people do sort of, you know, worry that uh, hospitals, in particular, I guess, more than practices, will um, emphasize the amenities, the parking, the food. Uh, that happens in places like New York and Los Angeles more than it does in Springfield, Mass. Um, and um, so, you know, I, I think that that's a, a legitimate concern. Um, and the reassurance part? Yeah, yeah I mean, well, you know, I, I, think, well, I, I think part of the reassurance may be that it, it, I don't think it's happening in any dramatic way, largely because most of us most hospitals are so cash-strapped that they can't really, you know, we don't have parents that we can ask to pay more tuition. We have Medicare who's saying, no, we're not, we're paying you less. So there's only so much you can do unless you're like in Los Angeles or something. Um, and then there's another side of it, which is that, have you ever eaten a hospital food as a patient? It's horrible, it's not nutritious, it's, it's not tasty. And so I think that there are, I mean, you know, we have double-bedded rooms still in our hospital, and, you know, I, I think hospitals do need to become better, uh, you, know, you know, provide better experience for their patients. And, and that's just talking about, like, the ex those amenities. There's just there's the service quality, too. So. We're at time now, so help me uh, thank you here once again.